Chapter 5 I was not in good shape. Although I had settled into a routine with a psychiatrist and discussed with him the facts of my life, it didn't actually feel that things were improving. Once more, just as I had done before my disappearance, I hid the symptoms of my extreme discomfort. I wanted to do whatever I could to relieve the fears my fury, my family had for my well-being. And once more, I was successful at my manipulation. My escape into health masked the fact that my inner condition really remained unchanged. My only reason for going to the psychiatrist was because it was expected of me. Part of my healthy persona included a recommitment to my flourishing career. The massive amount of publicity generated by my return created such a demand for the Magic Clown show that I did not re-enroll in school. Soon, I was booking shows not only here but abroad, commanding as much as $500 for half an hour. I performed for hotels, nightclubs, corporations, organizations, and private parties. My successful, my successful image was also supported by the expensive gifts I had taken to buying for Valerie, a mink coat and diamonds, and myself a new car. Having these things didn't bring me joy, but they seemed to go along with the lifestyle I was adopting, and I had decided before the marriage that I was going to go all the way in trying to do what I considered to be the right things. <clears throat> but more often than not, I felt that I was on the same well-oiled treadmill I had vowed to avoid, and I still couldn't see a reason for being on it. Other than that, it seems to be the only path available. One thing that particularly confused me about my situation was that while all the other adults I knew, including my parents, seemed to work so hard for what they had, I put out so little and reaped so much. It seemed this proportionate. My success just underlined my confusion about myself and my place in the world. If I still wasn't happy with all that I had, and the prospects of having more didn't seem to promise any more happiness, what could I possibly do in order to be happy? This question continues to play a central role in my career mental life, secret mental life. When I was 20, 
about eighteen months after Valerie and I were married, it occurred to me that my looking up my biological father, I might get some insight into the behavior patterns I found so difficult to accept in myself. Since my mother told me she didn't know where where to find him, I conducted a brief investigation. She had once mentioned having had to work during her first marriage because her husband was still in college, studying to be a teacher. So I began my research by phoning state boards of education in the North Northeast, plying the clerks with inquiries. I soon discovered that far from being the total incompetent I had imagined him to be, my birth father was a PhD and principal of a school in Connecticut. I called him at his office one afternoon and immediately lost my voice. On the other end of the phone, I heard him saying, Hello, hello, hello. When my voice finally squawked, Hello, this is Bruce Burkan. He was unable to speak. Now I was saying, Hello, hello, hello. After regaining his composure, he kept the conversation brief, inviting. Uh, he kept the conversation brief, inviting Valerie and me up to Connecticut that weekend to meet him. His wife and the three half-brothers I had ever even known to exist, 11-year-old Mitchell and the nine-year-old twins, Philip and Joy. Joy. We had lunch and dinner together, looked at photo albums, began to get to know each other. By way of an explanation about his lack of communication with me, he said that after he had given me up for adoption, he had sought to contact me through my grandmother and had been advised not to come between me and my new father. It was a wonderful visit for me, and I felt some resentment that so many years had been kept from me. Apparently, my mother really had known for some time where her former husband lived, that he had remarried, had three sons, and had achieved a respected position in his community. When I discovered this for myself, I envisioned my prospective relationship with my half-brothers and new family as a delightful addition to my life. But it turned out to be hellish. My half-brothers had been even more in the dark about my existence than I had been about theirs. They hadn't even known that their father had been married before. When we finally met, 
the strain on their family resulting from my sudden appearance in their lives eventually caused my father to discontinue all contact with me. But not before I was involved enough to feel I was being rejected totally. My parents were relieved when I stopped seeing my biological father's family. My prospect, the prospect that his family might have become important to me had hurt them. Now, that, that was last one aspect of my life they didn't have to worry about. From my perspective, it was just one more in a long series of disappointments. Even the fact that my biological father wasn't the madame I had at times feared him to be paled in comparison to the hurt I felt from his unwillingness to build a relationship with me. Even the fact that my biological father wasn't the madman I had at times feared him to be paled in comparison to the hurt I felt from his unwillingness to build the relationship with me. Around this time, another factor added to my instability. Although I maintained complete fidelity to Valerie, I became more and more involved in sexual fantasies that began to evaporate my previous desire for monogamy. I often felt a burning desire to have sexual intercourse with anyone I was socially attracted to. I still believed I should be monogamous, however, and as a consequence, rather than producing any pleasure, these fantasies served only to increase the level of my inner stress. My method of coping was exactly as it had always been. I continued being a master at suppressing and disguising what I regarded as the symptoms of my gross mental illness, which meant that my entire life was an act of deception, just as it had been before I disappeared. The strain of my self-control made me like a pressure cooker. And my treatment with the psychiatrist was doing nothing to reduce this pressure. As far as I was concerned, he was just another character to be manipulated in my melodrama. Having no confidence in his ability to help me, I gave him no opportunity to try. I spoke to him about everything except my under contempt for him and his profession. Chapter 6 Three years slowly passed after I returned from the dead and my worst fears were being realized. Everything was continuing to be the same. I was acquiring more success, more renown as a performer. I was traveling more and purchasing more. 
But regardless of how many acquisitions in the way of things and experiences I was adding to my life, something was still missing. I still never felt fulfilled, never felt happy. In fact, after three years of watching my condition, I was utterly miserable, despair over not finding a way out of my predicament. Brought out the idea of suicide more strongly than ever before. I let my mind dwell on thoughts of death for months while also trying to figure out other solutions to relieve my constant stress. Valerie and I were on a two week cruise in the Caribbean abroad. A Caribbean aboard the SS Leonard da Vinci when I finally decided that I want I wanted I want I wanted a, I wanted a divorce I broke down and cro- cried telling her everything that I thought was wrong with me concluding that there was not enough in life to nourish me or make me want more I told her with shame that I even fantasized converting my skills of deception into a life of a professional criminal because at least it would be more exciting than our prosaic lifestyle. The fact that I performed, uh, the fact that I permitted these fantasies into my mind reviled me to myself even more. I felt I had to be perfect in world thought. I felt I had to be perfect in word, thought, and deed just to have the right to exist. Imperfect as I was, I felt unworthiness and depression beyond description. And I could no longer live with the constant stress of trying to be the man whom I felt Valerie should have married. A man I felt I would never be. I told Valerie she could keep all our money and material possessions, and I would live in the woods. I had learned excellent camping skills as an eagle scout, and thoughts of living in the forest seems to dominate my mind as the only possibility for hope. I finally admitted to Valerie that I hadn't made any progress with the psychiatrist and that I often felt like killing myself. I explained that since I couldn't see any reason for my Melancholia. I must be defective, maybe even brain damaged. Valerie was crushed. She had a worse spring of compassion for me, in addition to her own sorrow and grief. We discussed and discussed, we cried, we hugged, but we both sensed the inevitable. That even though our parting would create a loss for both of us, 
and needed to escape from something, and she would soon be living alone. We decided to remain together two more weeks to explore any possible alternatives that might occur to us. Since our outer lives seemed so glamorous and buoyant, I dreaded the thought of how shocked and disappointed our families would be. I particularly dreaded seeing Valerie's father, Paul. Who had remained so close to me even after I had run away, and who was going to meet our ship when we docked in New York. But when we finally reached, we reached New York, Paul wasn't there with a sense of foreboding, with a sense of foreboding. Valerie and I returned home by bus, and Valerie immediately began calling family and friends to find out about her father. Noah answered until she called her uncle Otto, Paul's brother. Otto began weeping on the phone and would only say that Paul was in the hospital. That afternoon we visited him. Paul had cancer. Of the nervous system. It was inoperable. Two weeks later, Valerie's brother, Teddy, married his girlfriend, Linda. Several days after that, Paul was dead. Only after he died did Valerie and I finally start living apart and planning a divorce. Our separation did nothing to improve my spirits. I still hated life. I felt as if I were the last remaining piece of a huge jigsaw puzzle that had been odiously assembled, but though only one space remained unfilled, I didn't fit into it. In the autumn of 1970, During the first two months of my separation from Valerie, my brother Barry phoned me at the, morning, at the rooming house where I was living in Verona, New Jersey, and told me, Gram- Grandma has cancer. I barely heard him say that it was opera- operable and that doctors were optimistic. I was so overcome by a sense of loss that all I could do was burst into tears. The conversation didn't end there. However, I soon learned that Valerie's mother, Dolores, was also in the hospital. There were some problems with her vision. And it was suspected that she had a brain tumor. Neither she nor Grandma knew that the other was in the same hospital on the same floor, just several rooms away. I was told not to mention Grandmother's hospitalization to Valerie's mother if I called her, and not to mention Dolores' hospitalization if I called Grandma.
When I hung up the phone, all the guilt I was carrying from leaving Valerie and from running away three years before surged through me, breaking down the last vestige of resistance I had to kill myself. For years, I had felt so black inside and had not wanted to burden the ones I loved by sharing this blackness with them. But obviously, <clears throat> I had not been able to prevent them from being affected by it. I felt was the cancer in their lives and that if I destroyed himself, myself, in one final flourish, in time they would be able to recover. Locking the door of my rent, rented room, I downed enough sleeping pills to kill five men. Locking the door of my rented room, I downed enough sleeping pills to kill five men. I remember nothing of my initial hospitalization. The doctors told my parents I couldn't possibly survive. At one time, my heart stopped. Although the medical experts succeeded in not losing me at that moment, they told my parents it, only, it would only be a matter of hours until I would be dead. <clears throat> I survived the week-long coma. However, and was moved from the intensive care unit to a semi-private room in the same hospital as Grandma and Dolores. Verily and my parents would visit my room where I lay unconscious, then don their coats and go to Dolores's room. Then after visiting her, Again, put on their coats as if they were leaving the hospital and go instead to grandma's room. <clears throat> Even those who retained their health were in torture at this point. But for me, although I didn't know yet, the torture was just beginning. As soon as my doctors felt I was strong enough, I was sent directly from the hospital to a private mental institution. It was considered a posh retreat, catering to the elite, but there were still bars on the windows, and patients were not allowed to have matches, razors, or belts. Once there, I was put on heavy doses of tranquilizers given a battery of in-depth psychological tests and treated with psychotherapy. I was soon diagnosed as schizophrenic and was scheduled for electric shock treatments. After several weeks of electric shock, deep insulin coma therapy was initiated to further remove the peaks and valleys from my personality, and hopefully with them, any remaining desire I might, I might have to kill myself. Every morning, I was to be awakened 
at 4 a.m. and is trapped to a table. A massive overdose of insulin would then be injected so that moments later I would be comatose. The first day it began, I was jostled, jostled from sleep. from sleep and still a bit disoriented. I was led downstairs along tiled corridors while a succession of doors were unlocked for my entry. Then bolted behind me. The treatment room was sterile and laboratory-like divided by a flimsy curtain on one side of which lay the woman and on the other the men. We were seven altogether. Several days of testing were required to determine exactly how much insulin was needed to put me in a deep coma. The first morning I didn't succumb. The first morning, I didn't succumb completely, and so halfway awake, I watched the procedure consume the patients around me who had already been in the routine for weeks. As I lay there strapped to the table, I heard a woman scream from behind the curtain. Before I could even react, the man on the table next to me began shuddering, shuddering and vibrating the platform to which he was tied. He looked over and saw his mouth twisted and foaming. His eyes rolled up in their, shock, in their sockets, leaving only the whites. Moments later, in a spasm, his elimination system went out of control and he soiled his treatment gone with his own excrement. Guttural sounds goggled from his throat and joined with the sobs, screams, and moans of the other patients. I knew that I would enter the ranks of those surrounding me as soon as the exact measure of insulin needed to send me over the threshold had been reached, horrified. All I could think of during those first hours was how I could successfully kill myself before my turn came to join the coma club. But the institution had, of course, been made suicide-proof. Each morning, I was injected with a larger dose until on the third morning, the insulin finally won me over, and I was plugged into terror. My mouth seemed to be filled with cotton, and when I pleaded for water, I was told, No, please, I gave it, no, please, I can't even swallow, just a sip. No. 
The air seemed to buzz with a strange sound, and the shape of objects in the room constantly changed. One moment, uh, the orderly, orderly in charge was human, and in the next, as the insulin began to take effect, he was a monstrous demon whose very presence made my skin hot with fear. Unseen dogs barked from beneath the treatment table, and my body withered, 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 withered in its harness. My tongue felt as if I was sliding down my throat, and I began to choke. But I had little time for concern. Suddenly, my head exploded and splattered my brain all over the tiled white walls and whitewashed ceiling. Now everything was black, and I swirled, swirled. Away into infinite space, becoming nothing more than dizziness and pain. At about noon, an antidote known as glucagon was administered, and I awoke from the coma. This continued for three months. At which point the doctors told my parents I was cured and sent me home. Looking back, I can see that I started on the road that led to my second suicide attempt in the spring of 1971, the exact moment I was being released from the mental hospital. I was overweight from the high sugar diet. I had been forced to consume in conjunction with the insulin coma therapist,、uh, insulin coma treatment, and I was still taking heavy sedatives. I re- resembled a zombie. I had no complaints. I was numb. Dazed and completely flattened. I had the personality of a mush, marshmallow and slept most of the day. The cure was a curse. And as if the serpent's tooth hadn't bitten deep enough, ten months after Paul died. When I got out of the mental hospital, Valerie's brother, Teddy, my best friend, was killed in a head on car collision. He died instantly, and his wife, Linda, who was eight months pregnant, lost a baby and was in critical condition. The pain of Paul's and Teddy's death was so intense for me. I dared not let myself feel it. I started using the sedating drugs in larger and larger doses so that I would experience as little as possible of, my, of any feeling. Grandma seems to be recovering from her surgery, and the prognosis was still good. Prognosis was still good.
Dolores underwent brain surgery and the tumor that had been blurring her vision was successfully removed. Her recovery was rapid and prom promising. My reality was spinning, changing, changing, whirling so fast that I lived on the edge of constant dizziness for months. Everyone involved was coping in his or her own way. Valerie, whose burden was the greatest, counseled with a therapist. Dolores eventually returned to work. Grandma and Grandpa took a vacation in Florida, and my parents went about running their real estate and insurance business. Several months after my discharge from the hospital, a friend who was a cruise director compassionately offered to let me come aboard ship as his assistant. Implicit in his surgeon was the idea that life aboard, aboard a luxury liner at sea is as sedating as any drug or institu institution. Indeed, upon coming aboard, I had stored and maids attending to all my needs from food preparation and laundry to shoe, to shoe shines and making my bed. In this environment, away from home and family, I gradually stopped using the Thorazine and other drugs and my personality again began to take on some color. The two years between my first attempt to kill myself and Taylor Caldwell's party on the Rotterdam, Rotterdam were years of trouble. Twelve months passed during which I spent only 22 days in America. One of those 22 days I spent in court legally dissolving my marriage. At that point, I held the proverbial clean state slate, proverbial clean state in my hands and could have written anything on it that would start my life anew. But what did I do? Without any new discoveries on my part, I proceeded to redo the same old scenes I had played throughout my life. And this was despite the fact that during this time I had a meeting with a most remarkable woman who had I really been able to hear her in my heart, provided me with all the information I needed to find the happiness for which I so vainly searched. Chapter 7 Almost a year before Taylor Caldwell's party, in the spring of 1972, while docked in New York, I confide, confided, I confide, I confided to my brother, Barry, that I still felt suicidal. 
Barry responded by taking me to meet his meditation teacher, Hilda Charlton. I was brought to an incense-filled apartment on the sixth floor of a building on the Upper West Side. The walls were filled with pictures of the world's most famous saints, Jesus, Buddha, Krishna, perhaps a dozen people, conspicuous in their devotion to Hilda. Sat cross-legged on the carpet. As I looked my seat among them, I was surprised to find myself, who had only vaguely heard of meditation and suddenly didn't practice it, actually comfortable there. Hilda struck me as very old. I thought she must have been in her 70s at the time, although now I know she couldn't have been nearly that old. She was wearing a silk sari and had dyed red-brown hair. I found it funny that she could be a spiritual woman and still have dyed hair, but what struck me the what struck me most profoundly was that, despite her age, there was a vitality to her, the kind of special life force, strength, and enthusiasm usually only seen in children. In her deep-set eyes, there was infinite wisdom. I had never seen such eyes. They were clear, gray-blue, penetrating yet kind. Without question, she was a presence to be reckoned with, and when she spoke, chatty though she appeared, her voice held the power of utmost authority. Why would you consider killing yourself? She asked with a laugh. Because I'm so miserable that I'm actually in pain. I replied, where is the pain? Is it in your legs? Is it in your arms? Perhaps the pain is in your chest? Could I find it using a stethoscope? Are you having headaches? Is it in your head? I thought Hilda was ridiculing me. Suddenly, she almost shouting, Dummy, can't you see the pain isn't in your body? You could very well succeed in killing your body, and you'd still be miserable. Wait until you are happy. Then kill yourself, she laughed, irreverently, irreverently, irreverently. A rush of insights flooded my mind. By Hilda's grace, I felt as if I had suddenly seen light. Although I didn't know exactly what I had seen and had no idea how to express it, nevertheless, I felt I had glimpsed the flickerings of a new truth, a new philosophy, and sensing this New truth that I couldn't put into words. Life no longer seemed hopeless to me. I suddenly felt there were things I really didn't know. 
lessons I had not learned, no matter how well I had done in school or how accomplished I was as a magician. There were people like Hilda, I now realized, who had answers to questions I had never even thought of asking. My brain shook with excitement sitting in front of this ageless old woman named Hilda. I felt ready to explore another reality, a reality that promised to give added dimension and meaning to the one I had always assumed to be the only reality. Hilda herself was clearly in touch with a reality much larger than my limited concepts. It was part of what created her special energy and humor. She didn't seem to be locked into the same behaviors and emotions as everyone else I knew. She seems to have an ability to see and hear things that other people, including myself, couldn't see and hear. I didn't just treat Hilda as I was sh showing respect to an old person. I was in awe. All at once I realized that the magic I was practicing was a mere counterfeit of something else. That there was such a thing as real magic. This was the kind of magic I wanted in my future. The problem I faced now was how to find it.